Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, so this morning, I've, I've been going through uh, slowly, probably take a while, going through what are known as these uh, 36, I think they're called Bojangas, Bodhijangas, which are these um, factors of awakening um, outlined in the early Buddhist text and the Abhidharma. And so what it is, a big list of lists, right? But the good news is, I think, is, is, uh, is that they, they classify these kind of sets of lists as being the important ones. Of course, we have the four foundations of mindfulness, which is what we're on right now. Today, we'll talk about the third foundation of mindfulness. Uh, four foundations of mindfulness, the Eightfold Path, the five spiritual faculties, the four Brahma Viharas, the four means of accomplishment, there's a couple other ones that are, oh, the seven awakening factors. Uh, they're all lists that are pretty basic. They're stuff, if you go on an insight retreat, you listen to any Dharma talks, you're going to hear about this stuff. Which I think is good. I like I like that someone has reduced it down to saying, well, here's, here's all these lists, but here's only seven. that You only need these seven, which isn't too bad. Seven, we end up with 36 things. Kind of a lot, not too bad, though. Uh, and so today I want to talk, and probably for a while, uh, the third foundation of mindfulness, um, which is, I think, one of the, I, I, ironically, I think the foundations of mindfulness are really poorly taught. Um, I think that when we um, read about them or learn about them, you, you hear, of course, people talk a lot about the body and the breath. They talk a, a pretty good deal about feeling tone, hedonic tone. Uh, but when you get into the mind, uh, and especially the Dhammas, the third and fourth foundation of mindfulness, I think people generally talk about them or they teach them with some degree of nervousness. I think a lot of times because they're not exactly clear as to what is going on in these places. So generally when you hear that, when you hear third foundation of mindfulness, so when you talk about mindfulness of mind, we have to just be clear what he's talking about. He's talking about chitta. So when we, so it's mindfulness of chitta. So it's being aware of the 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 attitude the behavior the content the mood all these things that are actually kind of subtle um we're like you know if, if i ask you to bring your attention to your breathing you can get it immediately right you're right there boom that's what's good about the body it's right there but if i ask you to bring attention to the quality of your mind or the attitude of your mind right now you're not going to be able to locate that as easily as you can the breath so when we look at this analysis of chitta, I'll just read in one of the areas that has the best, I think the only way to look at it is the Abhidharma. I'll read some stuff out of the Abhidharma here. But um, basically when you deal with the third foundation of mindfulness, if you go to Dharma Seed or you listen to talks in them, mostly all you're gonna hear is a talk on greed, hatred, and confusion. Or even worse, greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion is the word most Dharma teachers use, which is a, I think a, a, pair, a fairly inaccurate and not great translation of the Pali word moha. So it's greed, hatred, and confusion. So what, now this is good because you can see this, right? You can, you can tell when there's, so, so when I watch my mind, largely what my mind is doing is it's wanting something, it's wanting to get rid of something, or it's confused. It's not sure if it wants it or if it wants to get rid of it. And I think the great confusion is, and this is kind of funny after all these years, is I'm really confused that getting what I want and avoiding what I don't want actually hasn't worked. I think that's the great confusion, is that 
And I try, and, and yet I still try like a son of a bitch most days to try to get the things that I want and avoid the things that I don't want. And I'm, and I'm confused about that whole process. So when we realize that, I think the, the bottom line is that largely, I think the human, the human experience uh, primarily is an experience of confusion. That oftentimes we find ourselves, many times we find ourselves, and maybe even mostly time, most of the time we find ourselves in situations we're not exactly quite sure what to do. Right? You're probably aware of this. So confusion is actually, being aware of confusion as a quality of mind actually has a lot of uh, value. Because if if I can't handle confusion, which I actually don't particularly care for it so much, uh, my mind will opt for greed or hatred. So if I'm not confused about what to do, then I'll, if I can't deal with that situation, then I'll usually just launch into some behavior that's rooted in get this and get rid of that. Cause I'm actually kind of a little bit more comfortable with that. Cause black and white, it's pretty clear, but we often find that that kind of burns us. So the first chapter of the Abhidharma is devoted to an examination of chitta consciousness or mind. Consciousness is taken up for study because the focus of the Buddhist analysis of reality is experience. And consciousness is the principal element in experience, that which constitutes the knowing or an awareness of an object. That's a mouthful. So I, I use this word a lot. You've probably noticed it a lot. And I think it's a really great word is the word experience. You know, we use it, it's a great English term. We all know what it means. And largely what we're experiencing is we're experiencing consciousness uh, and all of its objects and all of its behaviors and all of its, the whole damn thing. Whatever this is, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a mess, but that's really a lot of the environment that we find ourselves in. The Pali word chitta is derived from the verb chitti, to cognize or to know. The commentators define chitta in three particular ways, as an agent, as an instrument, and as an activity. As the agent, chitta is that which cognizes an object. As the instrument, chitta is that by means of which the accompanying mental factors cognize the object. As an activity, Chitta is itself nothing other than the entire process of cognizing. Of the three, this is the preferred definition. So we could probably say, and and those of us who think about this in English-speaking mind, I I think that probably the most accurate translation for chitta would be cognition. So we cognize experience. And we use this word recognize. Recognize just means to recognize something. So every time you... You hear, you hear the, you, you, the only reason you know the words I'm saying right now is because you recognize them and you know English and you're recognizing over and over again right now. And so the thing about it that's so hard, and I'll talk about this mostly, I think that we forget is that if we look at, the, at consciousness again, the study of the consciousness, we have to understand that we can't, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, you can't draw a line between feeling and cognition. Right. There's this great Robert Wright uh, article he recently wrote on this affect. We would call it in a clinical sense, affect and cognition. So there's feeling, which is the feeling tone. And then we have cognizing. Those are not those are interrelated events. This is why mindfulness of the mind is so valuable, because actually whatever I'm cognizing 
is to some degree being influenced and really to some degree being corrupted by how I feel. So if what I'm thinking about in my mind feels good, I'm more likely to believe it. If what I'm thinking about in my mind feels bad or unpleasant, I'm more likely to reject it. And so because we think we're so fucking smart, you know, we can think about these things and, 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 and make a case for why we hold a, perfect, a, a specific political or social view. And the main reason we hold that view, a lot of the reason that we hold that view is because it pleases us on some level. It feels pleasant. We like it. But we don't factor in the fact that what's largely compelling that view or that opinion is the feeling tone. Because a lot of times we separate those. We say, well, there's the feeling tone, and then there's there's the third, the second foundation, and then there's the third foundation. There's feeling, and then there's chitta. No way. They are totally mixed together all of the time. And so also we don't do this, I think, is we don't necessarily, when we're reflecting on our just our mind or our thinking or our views or our opinions, we a lot of times don't go, we don't assess it as being pleasant or unpleasant right if it's pleasant it's right and i agree with it and it feels true if it's unpleasant i don't agree with it feel like it's false or it's wrong now what's largely making that assessment is not your intelligence maybe a little bit for sure but a lot of what's feeding that view and that opinion is the fact that it feels good to you to hold it does that make sense? Right. And so th this really, really changes the game. Because when I feel like I'm right, and I, I, I feel like I'm right much of the time about a lot of things, and I actually might be, who knows, right? But a largely the, the, the reason I'm clinging or I'm holding into that rightness is because it feels pleasant in my mind and in my, it just feels agreeable. Right. And I can give you, I could probably give you a 20 minute analysis on why this is the, the, why, why I'm right. But what I'm not doing, and I actually didn't start doing this till recently because I've been talking to John Peacock about this a lot, is I don't, I haven't historically been able to assess, okay, well, this feels really good. And how much of this feeling really good is contributing to me holding tightly to this view? And I would say it's to a much higher degree than I would like to admit, right? And so when we usually think about feeling, we're usually too much associating with tactile or, you know, pleasant food or a pleasant time. We mostly, I think, usually kind of, we kind of project it towards sensory experience, which is certainly true. But when you really start to try to look at mental experience or cognition, um, it's very interesting to start to assess the feeling tone nature of cognition of this. It feels, you know, there's certain things you like thinking about. It feels good. It feels good to think about certain things, right? There's certain types of thinking that feel good. There's certain types of thinking that actually doesn't feel good. All right. And, and then the Buddha in his brilliance, he says, well, if you, if you can't catch it in the feeling, and you can't catch it in the cognition, the last line of defense we have is to try to catch it in the hindrances. 
right? That's sort of the last defense we have towards just completely uh, getting consumed by these things. So we have, you know, we have, um, you know, craving and aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. So that's kind of the last territory we have. And so we, if we back those down, they all kind of spring out of this sense of feeling, feeling right, feeling wrong, feeling true, feeling false. And so a lot of those things, a lot of those, we could probably call them polarized views. You know, there's right and there's wrong and there's good and there's bad and there's uh, correct and there's incorrect and there's right and there's wrong. Those, if you look at what sits beneath those, it's mostly just pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant is right, is true, all those things, right? And so, and the other question is, I think when it comes to views and opinions is, um, how much utility is there? How, how much value does your opinions and views contribute to the quality of your life? The question is, can we, can we do, can we, and this is a practice question. I, I've been talking to John about this and I've been trying it and it's really hard. Can I just do, can I do without them? You know, just try that out sometime. Next time you're in a situation where you have some view and some opinion that you feel really strongly about, just see if you could just do without it just one time, just to see if anything bad happens that you did without your view. Right? Which is really hard because usually what it requires is being quiet and keeping your big mouth shut. Because that's, that, that's how we express our views is verbally. Right? It's really hard to keep that stuff inside. And so, um, you know, this is like, I think a huge aspect of mind to try to be aware of and trying to really, yes, Stu, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Just a quick um, sure. question on, can you just help me understand there are things that I think I'm pretty, that I might think I'm right. For example, I'm pretty sure a recession's on the way. I'm pretty sure my dad is has some certain is not well those don't feel good but they feel like i feel like i'm right right and you might be and some you know this isn't true for everything okay right so 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 i'm getting there right so 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 if we bring mindfulness to this thing i'm talking about then you have discerning so the question is like with your dad you probably can discern and you could probably break that, but, but you know, we don't, we're not always able to discern, right? And so, so what happens is the question can be like, am I discerning this or am I just assuming this? Because a lot of times we end up making assumptions about situations and we don't look at them with mindfulness. And I think this is where I think mindfulness and wisdom, you know, I don't like that word so much, or, or discerning is a good word. Mindfulness is understanding. If you're an intelligent person, you can look at certain situations and discern, like situation with your dad. There are certain things where we can discern, you know, that that's likely to happen. But a lot of times we don't do, in many situations, we don't necessarily do the hard work of doing that, those little gymnastics that we have to do. That's, I think, where um, the chitta becomes. So, so then the question becomes this, well, what's the difference between consciousness and chitta? So, so if you're talking about consciousness and you're talking about the mind, as they talk about in the third foundation, there's consciousness and then there's chitta. And so you're like, well, what, what, what's the difference? So mindfulness is kind of the linchpin here. 
And Goldstein talked about this in our meeting a couple weeks ago, whenever the hell that was, is that perception, which is a huge part of cognition, can can be a, a support for mindfulness or it can be a block for mindfulness, right? So so how do I want to say this? So the Buddha says that consciousness is to be fully known and chitta is to be cultivated, right? So that's, that, that's largely, I think, the role of mindfulness is trying to discern. So consciousness is something that arises all by itself. So so I go into a situation and I walk into a room, I walk into a situation, I get some information and consciousness already gives me a whole presentation of what's going on, right? And that's just, so I'm supposed to fully know that means that's where the mindfulness and the discerning comes in. Well, well, I think this and it feels good, but maybe I'm not right here and maybe I'm not correct. Maybe, maybe I don't have all the information and maybe I should, uh, they talk about this in cultivating emotional balance. This is what we would call cognitive reappraisal. So you're looking at the situation over and over again. And as you look at the situation over and over again, and you f- reflect, well, I'm probably making this assumption because it feels really good. Uh, and so, you know, we're looking at that situation and we're coming up, we're cultivating, uh, we're using probably lots of different things. Um now, of course, this is hard to do, but I, I, the thing about it that I want to highlight too is you're probably doing this a lot of the time, most of you, but I think it's important to know when, we're, when we are actually reassessing or being discerning about an experience or if we're just being driven by our automatic analysis of what's going on. Does that make sense? I think that's the distinction you're looking for, Stu, is that am I just assuming that the information I'm getting about this experience in my mind is actually true, or am I willing to kind of go, well, maybe I'm not totally seeing this correctly, right? Now, of course, the information, the new, the, the mind's newsfeed stream is so damn fast that you can't be doing this all of the time. So I think one of the things that's hard is trying to, you know, making sure that we're doing this mindfulness wisdom thing at things that actually matter. Because a lot of the stuff that arises in our mind, it's just, it's just I would call it um, non-afflictive delusion. It's just kind of random events. But, you know, stuff with our, stuff with our society, with our politics, with our family, that we all have big ticket items in our life, things that actually matter to us. And it's the things that matter to us where we need to apply this stuff most. You know, it's the people that we see every day, whether it's our, our, our children or our parents or our friends or our coworkers, probably our coworkers. You know, those are the situations where I think this kind of mindfulness of mind uh, is where we really need to have it. So we can kind of go into situations with a little bit more relaxation, a little bit more ease, a little bit more presence. And then we can kind of discern those experiences rather than being led um automatically so actually uh, what i what i want to do today i'm going to take some questions now let's talk about this now and then we'll do a practice at the end because i know this is not necessarily light or easy stuff um but i'll just stop there and see if there's any other questions or any other thoughts you have this and just if there's things you want me to try to unpack further but i think this is really uh important